Hi, I'm Hannah, Gallery Manager at Fenderton Gallery, and thank you for tuning into my podcast. This episode features a recent conversation with ceramicist Francis Priest, who I caught up with towards the end of January. Drawing is an important part of Francis's practice, and we have been lucky enough to show a selection of these works in our Plant Life exhibition last year, and will soon be exhibiting a selection of newly developed works from her India series in our upcoming spring show. Thank you to Frances for her time. It was lovely to chat not only about her beautiful work, but her new studio assistant and the food stops of Yorkshire too. Hi Frances, how are you? Morning Hannah, how are you doing? Yeah, fine thank you. I've just got a little uh, eight-month-old puppy who needs appeasing for an hour so that I can um, actually get any work done. We might have a couple of moments anyway. That's okay. We've got a dog arriving on Saturday, little puppy. So we're oh. about to enter that world. Yes. Um, what sort of puppy yeah. are you getting? Uh, so he's a Spanish water dog. They're quite hard to come by. So we've been sort of chatting with various breeders and then it just so happens that finally a, a little pup's oh. come along in a litter that's for oh. us. So, But yeah, it couldn't come at a better time, actually. I think we're both delighted to be it's a lot more work than I ever anticipated it would be. But anyway, you'll have a lovely time, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> actually, it's funny. Um, when I was doing a bit of research um, into you, I noticed that you were born in Wakefield. You grew up, yeah. Did you grow up uh-huh. around there? So my partner yeah. was, he grew up in Osset. So, no, um, really? Yeah, oh, and go. he went to um, the Dewsbury College and did ceramics with, it was David Roberts, wasn't it? I sort of there's a tiny bit of alumni around Dewsbury College in the ceramic world predominantly because of David he's really good at keeping in touch with us all and yeah he's really um like an important figure in yes, my yeah. creative life yeah oh lovely oh well, that was really funny because it, it's such a small world and especially I mean I don't know where were you Wakefield sort of as the city or uh sort of um like suburban edge of edge quite far out from the city you know oh, the city was maybe like a 15 20 minute drive away so it was a little it would have been a village but it, the area was called Durka Fields but okay. we moved towards the west so towards the Pennines when I was maybe 10 or 11 so then we were living sort of in um probably in closer proximity to Huddersfield or probably equidistant oh, actually yeah. so a village called Denbydale which oh, for yeah. some Denby reason Dale lots Pie. of people know Exactly. <laughs> well, because of the pie and because it's also marked as a junction on the M1. Oh, I so see. So actually a lot more people know about this little village than you would expect them to. Yeah. Yes, no, Matt's um, dad is a very classic Yorkshireman and whenever we go up there, yes. I get pointed out all the key, oh, Denbydale pie and whatever other, <laughs> you know, it's kind of the real food stops of Yorkshire, which is very nice, but I said, oh, you told me that last time, Alan. <laughs> We're very proud of our pie. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, quite rightly, quite rightly. Sorry, we'll get on to the actual conversation in a bit, but it's it nice to have a chat. Nice to, nice to chat, yeah. <laughs> okay, so there were, I sent the questions. There were t- a couple of other yeah. things that I wanted to ask you about, and one was about the Rasse drawings. I'd sure. like to talk a little bit more about that, obviously, because we had those as plant life. The other one was this kind of term that you use, which is very lovely. And maybe we'll sort of start with that. Um, this language of ornament. How would you describe language of ornament to someone who, who hasn't come across this term before? 
So it's a term that I have borrowed from um, a, a historian called James Trilling, but it's a, a term that really struck a chord with me. And I think it sort of grew out of, um, in 2005, I exhibited work in Japan. And that was the first time that I traveled outside of a Western country. Yeah. And that was a really significant experience for me in terms of going to a place where craft and the decorative were the primary art forms. And um, I was very aware of how pattern and ornament sort of covered, covered the country in a very sort of tasteful and, and careful and considered manner. But decoration and pattern ornament were a huge part of the visual language, what I encountered. And then soon after that, I, I went on to a residency at a school in Thailand and worked for a year as artist in residence in a school in Thailand and traveled around Southeast Asia. And again, in encountering cultures where ornament and pattern were in abundance and each place had its own identity through these decorative motifs. And so that idea of a visual language um, sort of started to crystallize in my mind and then when I came back to the UK with all of my research from those experiences I was invited uh, or I applied and was successful in being invited to uh, Cove Park which is a residency centre on the west coast of Scotland and spent time with all of this research and started reading about it and that's when I encountered James Trilling's book and that's where that term first you know was, was um, put into words for me I suppose. Yeah, so would you say that's sort of where your your inspiration began then? You know, what how did you become a ceramicist and what was the kind of pathway that led you to to be where you are now? Working with ceramics goes back to my foundation course at Dewsbury College of Art. And um, obviously it was a diagnostic course, so I was trying out lots of different things. Drawing was a huge passion. But I, I, I was lucky enough to uh, be taught by David Roberts, who's a, re a renowned um, studio ceramicist working with Raku and smoke firing. Um, so I didn't really realise at the time what a significant artist he was, but I was incredibly lucky to, you know, um, work with him. And um, drawing is a huge part of his practice. He's, he's drawing with smoke. He's drawing onto the surface of three-dimensional clay forms. So I think he's been really significant in, in my thinking. So it was really that experience. And, and I showed an affinity and was kind of directed towards ceramics, advised that that was, you know, a, an area for me to pursue. So then I applied to Edinburgh College of Art and was accepted into the second year of their four-year programme mm -hmm. um, and studied there. So that, that was kind of really where it came about. And the work that I was making on the course in Dewsbury, when I look back on it now, had some of the concerns that that still you know preoccupy me to this day which is the relationship between drawing and making and and two and three dimensions so I was converting a lot of my life drawing into ceramic forms that were oh, that were semi semi flat and were kind of carved and I was putting slashing marks into the surface of the clay mm. so it's probably only recently that I can look back at that work and, and see the connection through, even though actually the look of it was incredibly different, you know, yeah. it was figurative at that time. Yeah. So did you always sort of know that that you wanted to pursue a creative career? You know, what what stemmed that before you sort of arrived at Dewsbury? How did sure. you know, 
young Frances decide that she was gonna going to be uh, going to do her foundation? Uh, so it was probably all that young Francis was any good at. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was lucky enough to end up at a, a school, uh, just a, a state school, Shelley High School, where the arts and uh, the art departments uh, were really strong. So in there was a brilliant theatre department, there was a great English department and there was a fantastic art department. Um, so I um, kind of got absorbed in, in those areas of activity in the school and was terrible at maths and, and science <laughs> and uh, was never interested in joining the hockey team or anything, just used to go down to the art, art department at lunchtimes and get involved in all the theatre that was happening. So there was, yeah, lots of uh, contemporary dance groups that I was a member of and had just lots and lots of encouragement that this could actually be something that I could pursue, which was um, maybe at odds with, you know, expectations at home. Um, and I ended up being, you know, the first member of my uh, family to head off to university, which was, you know, quite, quite a big deal at the time. And, yeah. and parents who were quite concerned about my future and, and how this might all pan out. So, um, yeah, it was quite a radical move to go off to art school. <laughs> well I think there quite often is a, a sort of push for art to perhaps be kind of the last option mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. sort of oh well you know maybe if you can't be a doctor or you can't be this or you can't be that mm -hmm. then you can mm -hmm. think about art school or something uh, and of course at the moment there's there's a lot of funding cuts in in arts and schools yeah. as well and and mm -hmm. you know it's not just a thing that actually um oh you can't do this so you might as well do that actually it's such an important part of development um you know it's it's nice to know that you sort of push that away and thought actually no this is what I this is what I want to do yeah I don't know where I got the energy for that really and certainly now when I look at the prospects for students and the you know the costs involved in studying and I, I'm not sure that I would have been able to make that decision um you know and I think that is a real issue in art schools now is that there, there are an awful lot of people who just can't can't access that training because it just is financially beyond their reach and um, so I think that is a, 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 a huge problem now. So you talked about your you know that you went through Dewsbury and ended up at, at Edinburgh College mm -hmm. of Art so mm -hmm. can you tell me a bit about your time there and you know how that sort of developed your practice? Yeah it was quite an interesting department because they um, they really did sort of span the possibilities of what ceramic could be so I think some courses might might have been more directed toward uh, design and function but certainly at Edinburgh and it, it might have been a sort of partly to do with the geography of the art school in that the sculpture department was right next door to the ceramic department um, so we were really encouraged to experiment and play with the material and actually the work that I produced at Edinburgh College of Art was much more about process and material and I was working with bone china and I was um, slumping you know very refined bone china shapes in the kiln and capturing them just before they collapsed and um, all of that work is actually on slide format so I don't regularly look at those images Amazing. but um, I think I might go back to them again and look at that work because I again there was this sort of obsession with I would make paper models and then I would make those models in clay and then I would put them in the kiln and see what the heat work did, yes, did to them yeah 
what voice that had in the in the final work so even with that work I can see a thread through this obsession with sort of moving between two and three dimensions yes well I was going to say it sounds very much like these sort of drawings that you do and and actually they're sort of uh, transition to becoming the three-dimensional object that you then you know have as uh, as as an ornament or a bowl or, or whatever it is that you've sort of created in that form and um, I think that's the fascination with clay sorry because it, no, it, it it can be a surface and it can be a form you yes. know it's this hybrid sort of material so that brings us quite nicely onto your practice and of course we've been lucky enough to show uh, your drawings as part of our plant life exhibition which was last year um, and then we are showing some more drawings um, in the spring exhibition this year which is which is fantastic so so how how you know let's talk about your process so you you have a drawing or a sketch that you've done how does that then become a a piece that that is presented in in a gallery or wherever it might be a lot of the work begins as research. So whether that be into a primary source, like the, the, the Rasse drawings that you had, where I was looking at a specific environment, um, or it might be looking at existing languages of ornament, where I would look maybe at a pattern book or an example of a, 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 a decorative work, and then um, extract motifs from that, trying to kind of capture the essence of it, but also my, the things that appeal to me and then um, transfer that into a drawing and then moving that drawing into clay. And there's, um, I guess, a moment where I'll, I'll develop test tiles where I'm thinking about how, so the ceramic work, the line is inscribed into the surface of the clay. So it's thinking about how to translate the pen line into an inscribed line on the surface yeah. of the clay and then also thinking about how to translate colour and texture and I kind of um, I've sort of settled on a way of working in my sketchbook where I'm using watercolours and gouache which somehow seem to represent the commercial glazes and slips that I buy oh, where the the glaze is watercolour yeah. and the vitreous slips are gouache. So you yeah. get this lovely, you know, um, reflective surfaces and matte surfaces. And I guess what I'm attempting to do with the ceramic is just build up these really rich magpie-like surfaces for want of a better description, where you sort of just get absorbed in, in the colour and the detail and the, the surface texture and playing with the, the, the matte slips and the shiny glaze is lovely because the glaze is catching the light. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking about the different processes that might have been involved in the original source so so it could be embroidery it could be mosaic it could be inlay it could be um you know something woven and how those decorative motifs are translated through these different processes and i think that's one of the things that i find fascinating about languages of ornament is that people pick them up and use them translate them and they evolve and they change that's through drawing and it's through making and it's through material. Yeah. Well, your so works certainly have a very tactile quality to them. You know, you, I noticed on some of your um, bowls and things, you know, it's not like a, or your vessels, it's not a straight edge. The, the pattern um, very much extends into the form that it creates as a, as a sort of object as well. Sure. Um, mm. You know, which is very reminiscent of that, you know, of, I suppose, areas and influence um kind of I suppose layering of the patterns as well 
Um, so I how? Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I keep butting in. I'm <laughs> no, so no. sorry. <laughs> um, I think there was there was a moment where because my work's changed quite a lot over my career visually even if these concerns have been a thread that have run through them. So the, the way it's manifested itself has changed quite a lot. Um, and there was a moment where I got really tired of making objects to sit on plinths in commercial galleries. And I sort of disappeared off and started working on residencies and uh, looking at engaged ways of working. And then moved back to the studio and studio ceramics, but wanted to try and capture some of that I guess the idea of making as a performance and that, that it isn't just about the finished object, but it's about the process of it being made yeah. and trying to share some of that with the viewer. And so making works that somehow have a sense of either being unfinished or like they could be picked up and carried on is, is quite an important essence yeah. within the work. And that, that manifests itself through objects that don't have a flat edge, but have a, an edge that follows the line of the pattern. So it looks yeah. like you could keep building it yeah. or collections of objects, which people can pick up and interact with and rearrange. So yeah, that kind of interactiveness or trying to convey some of the pleasure of the making and the drawing into but the viewer's experience is important. Which I think is, yeah, a very important aspect of uh, being creative, but also portraying the kind of, like you say, the creative process in that actually people want to know how these things are made. Um, mm. And I think there certainly is much more of a, a drive towards the, you know, the artist. And, and you know, maybe this brings us quite nicely on to talk about your, your studio and the creative space that you're in. But I know, I mean, I worked at a complex of art studios for a number of years in London and the open studios that we had were always a fascination with people wanting to come and see where it was actually made and how it was actually made and who primarily was actually making it as well. So, so tell us about your studio. So you're based in Edinburgh still, you, you, you stayed after university um, and how has that sort of, uh, sort of gone and, and where are you working? So I have a, a studio space, um, probably very aptly in a Victorian uh, school building. So it's quite oh, a decorative wow. looking building, although it's a wee bit shabby, unfortunately, yeah. but it could be very beautiful if it was um, yeah, converted into a block of flats, which fortunately it hasn't been. Uh, so um, I'm in, I think, what was the administrator's room of the school. Uh, it's a, a double height space, so um, quite small, but because it's double height, I can make the most of it. The, the footprint of the space so um, on the ground floor I've got my kilns and my clay and all my um, molds and tools and uh, workbenches for clay and then there's a set of stairs and you go upstairs to a mezzanine level which is just oh. under half of the space yeah. um, and up there I've got sort of um, my little library bookshelves and I guess a clean space um, but I tend to do a lot of glazing up there as well so I'll take work up there once it's been and bisque fired and I'll work on the glazing because that's quite a quite a time consuming and quite static process and that's where all the heat ends up in the in the studio oh, is of course yeah it's much nicer to be working up there um the space is south facing so and there's big double height windows oh, which is why there's no heat because it all disappears through the windows but it does mean that the light is very beautiful um okay so we talked a bit about your process but it would be lovely to get the actual process of 
of putting these patterns onto that and you've done this very uh, meticulous process of of drawing onto them so um you know can you sort of give us a bit of about that and how um, yeah sure so i suppose i'm 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 drawing out skins of pattern onto the surface of the clay and it's it sits on the surface but it is inscribed into the surface of the clay so i use a scalpel like a pen and i use a combination i will um create or adapt metal tools that can be impressed into the surface to make a repeat so almost like a sort of cookie cutter you know tiny little yeah. that you can push into the surface um and i've inherited actually a collection of cake decorating tools from my mum for making oh, yeah. very refined sugar paste flowers so they've been a great starting point and i've got little pliers that i can adapt those shapes to exactly what i'm looking for well that um, sounds like the perfect the, kit <laughs> yeah, yeah so it's been quite a good thing to inherit from her. and i also use paper templates so to sort of draw around to get repeat shapes um, and I'm trying to, I guess it's a way of creating repeats that, are, that, that that's handmade rather than mechanised, if you like. But I'm using these templates to kind of create that regularity in the repeat. Um, but the joy of it is that it's my hand. So you get these, you know, slips and changes, which I guess create, which is what the joy of the handmade is, I think, is yeah. that you get these vibrations across a surface of repeat repeats so if you think about wood block prints or you know the joy of them and the mistakes almost that build yeah. up into a rich hole so that's sort of what I'm thinking about I guess as well as thinking about drawing I've kind of said this already sorry but the the, the processes that um might be involved in creating decorative art so things like mosaic or stitch or inlay where there's units that are built up to create a whole so repeating yeah. gestures that create yeah. a whole and i think that's the same when you're making a drawing it's a collection of marks that 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 are built up over time into into a complete thing it's quite a meditative process and um i get very very absorbed into it so I spend yet yeah, a lot of quiet time in the studio working away, building these drawings and they're slightly automatic as well. So there'll be a sketch that I work from as a starting point, but I quite like the idea that the motifs have their say. So the sort of collaged pieces that I might build up, the, the only rule might be that you don't have the same pattern touching itself. So you might have three different types of pattern that you then build up as a repeat across the surface. So there's a slightly kind of, you know, abstract element to what I'm doing as well and, 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 and letting the drawing emerge out of those processes, if you like. Um, yes, it was going to be one of one of my uh, questions was um, actually this kind of decision making, I suppose, in, in because they are often not sort of one pattern or one shape. How do they sort of fit together? Is that something that's done? on the paper and you think okay well that's how they fit and that's how I'm going to do it or does that quite naturally come together like you say through this sort of slightly automatic but slightly you know thinking of of how the pattern is going to because of course you know the one of course you know this but one of the main differences between 2D and 3D is that actually by putting it on a vessel mm. you're having to think about it in in quite a different way yeah so uh, so and I find I, some of the decision making is made for me through through the process and 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 through um, you know a repeating form across a a repeating motif across a three dimensional form is at some point going to stop 
it won't fit forever you know the form will start to get involved and it means that they won't exactly match and they'll start to become offset and um I find that really fascinating (laughs) and interesting and at the moment the way I'm using that is that the I'm using this sort of collage you know this collaging of areas of surface pattern so as soon as it starts to break up then I'll stop and I will introduce you know another one of the elements so so that that has a kind of voice but um there have been pieces that I've made in the past and there is a body of work to come at some point which will which will actually exploit that breaking up of pattern and and will look at how that happens across a surface and that that will be the the thing that's the interest if you like so so that's an idea that I think will come yeah. through in the work but my because it's so time consuming the work does evolve very very slowly yeah um, but I think that work will probably become more abstract and much more just about drawing and maybe yeah there are certain like abstract painters that I am very drawn to and I think that work might connect up to that history whereas at the moment I'm really fascinated by decorative art and ornament and motif so that's kind of where my focus is at the moment I think um so we um touched sort of briefly earlier on on the Rasse drawings that we that we showed in plant life so we touched earlier on the Rasse drawings which of course we showed in plant life late last year and so um that was based on on this Rasse island and this uh research project that you did whilst you were there specifically with that project but also your other one sense of place seems to be very sort of prominent in an, in a lot of your work so so how does that kind of play a role and, and can you talk a bit about the Rasse project? So the Rasse project came out of an invitation from an arts organisation called Atlas Arts who are based up in Sky and Loch Alsh and they are an arts organisation um, without a building so they like to work with artists who are interested in responding to place and interested in placing work and citing work within that region Um, And it was founded by curator Emma Nicholson. And I was one of the sort of first artists to be invited to work with this new organization. And I'd been developing all this work based on my travels in Southeast Asia and looking directly at languages of ornament relating to specific cultures. And I think I wanted to bring it back home basically. And also to think about working from a source and developing my own language of ornament. So that was my kind of premise, if you like. And so to look at a Scottish location and to look at a a kind of highland landscape, if you like, or a highland island landscape, and to to develop a collection of of patterns, motifs relating to that was was the kind of starting point. Um, So I went up to to Skye and um, Emma suggested that I pop over to Rasse and have a look at Rasse because there was a building there, Rasse House, which is uh, owned by the community. It's one of like, it's it's basically a Highland Lodge now, you know, so one of many Victorian buildings that populate the Highlands and got quite a complex history, but it's owned by the community. And there was quite a long story to do with them doing it up. And then there was this terrible fire and then they had to start all over again. And so it was this, you know, it was a focal point on the island. And also a lot of the decorative history of the interiors had been obliterated by this fire. So it was a bit of a blank canvas as well. So that became a site. And then I um, was chatting with the local ranger to the region and he said, oh, you should get in touch with um, the botanist that lives on Rasse, Stephen Bungard. 
and uh, it was through conversations with Stephen that the idea kind of crystallized and it became a, a real collaboration. And we decided to create patterns of flora mapping seven Rasse habitats. So we looked at seven habitats and the associated plants. And then I developed a series of decorative patterns based on each of those habitats. And then that manifested itself in ceramic pieces installed throughout Rasse House. So you could go into the house and encounter um, decorative interpretations of the landscape or of the plant life of the island. And the idea was that the objects would activate an interest in people to go out into the, into the island and wander around and, and experience the landscape. And to encourage that, we created an illustrated map of wall to the seven different habitats or examples of the seven different habitats across the island. So the project kind of worked on multiple levels and was really embedded in the place and was about the place and was about using objects to activate action in the viewer I suppose and, and I'm super fascinated by that and I think the objects that we have around us in our homes you know the, the decorative objects that we have in our homes are, are full of that and do that naturally all the time so I guess it's just exploiting and directing that. Well you're right and and also to think about door handles and things like that as a decorative object which you know for most people it wouldn't oh it's a door handle but actually that's still you know whether it's one of yours or, or another one that's still been designed by someone that is still a sort yes. of aspect of design and art in its you know in its own form anyway and I love the idea of this kind of theme running through the building and and it, I mean I, I looked at some pictures actually of the of the place and it looked absolutely gorgeous and you just yeah, oh, I'll go and stay there yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah I guess as well it it, it, it played into into you know being beneficial to that area as well it might be yeah. it might draw people to the to a particular you know, to that location who might not have known about it before and we created a coloring book as well um which is yes, coming we've to got one of the gallery yes oh lovely lovely so yeah that and we that that again was a, a limited edition at the time a big sort of a3 book but during lockdown we 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 um released that as an a4 printer friendly uh, oh. download so um people could yeah color color during, what a brilliant during lockdown idea. yeah do a bit of armchair traveling uh, yes, up to yeah. so that project's kind of come to the fore again so that was right at the start of lockdown and then you guys got in touch about presenting the you know some finished drawings in your plant life exhibition so it's sort of come back to the foreground again because that was back in 2015 that that work was made so Feels it's like nice it's come in a cycle then. Yeah, well, no, yeah. I, and they were very well received and, and much admired. So so we were thrilled to have them. So um, let's talk about the India drawings. So what was the inspiration behind those? Um, so that's a, that goes directly to a pattern book that I'm work, I've been working with um, directly in my work for some time, but has been in my life since I was a child. And it's The Grammar of Ornament by Owen Jones. Uh, so a seminal work um, of the Victorian design era. And um, yeah, my, my parents bought me a copy of it as a little girl. And so I have very strong memories of the, the pages of the Grammar of Ornament and, and looking at them and sort of reveling in their color and detail. Um, and then I think the decorative was something that I eschewed at art school in favor of uh, minimalist and sort of modernist sensibilities. And um, 
I guess came, I came back to the book after my um, experiences in Japan and Southeast Asia and my, my uh, recognition that pattern and decoration were true loves of mine and, and this book was maybe the starting point for that. So the book is broken up into different sections. Uh, I'm increasingly conscious of um, the problematic nature of the book, the era that it represents, um, the fact that it is really a document of empire um, and it's kind of constructed in that way as well with sort of um, Great Britain at the centre of it. And then yeah. so like many work, works of the Victorian era, but uh, it was a, 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 as an object, it pioneered lithographic printing processes. Um, I, I'm very fascinated in it because it's a crystallisation of this idea that I have of individuals picking up languages of ornament, making them their own, interpreting them and moving them forward. And that's what Owen Jones did. You know, it's essentially one man's view of languages of ornament from around the world. But also it was presented to the nation as uh, a design Bible. So for, for other craftspeople, artisans, decorative artists to pick up and, and work from. Yeah. And it speaks to our design history in Britain, which is one of um, influences from around the world because of our history of, yeah. of, of empire. So it's, it's, you know, particularly over the last 12 months, I've really, it's, I've really had to think about this book a bit more and, and, and about what it represents and why I'm using it. And uh, there are uncomfortable sections of the book, which I, in the past, have been privileged enough to just ignore and I can't ignore that anymore yeah I understand that now so um but has that changed your feeling about the book you know or, or I suppose the patterns are still the patterns that you adored from a child but you know you say you think differently about it has it changed your your sort of love of it I suppose it hasn't changed my love of it it's just made me address its historical context and it's made me talk about that more whether at some point that manifests itself in some physical outputs and physical artwork is maybe not the point. I think it's actually for all of us just really thinking about these things a lot more and thinking more carefully about our actions and what and why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, completely. We've kind of covered all of the questions that I was going to ask um, mm -hmm. other than uh, you mentioned briefly a project, a sort of more abstract project that you might sort of come into fruition soon. But is there anything else planned for you in the, in the sort of near or distant future? It's hard to know. Hard, hard to say what that lots means. Of plans, but whether <laughs> whether I'll be allowed to pursue them or not is, um, I guess, up for debate, like all of us. But um, yes, the the big plan that I'm sort of waiting to get started on is uh, I was very fortunate to be awarded a Quest scholarship last year. Um, to pursue an interest in um, tile making, uh, working with um, tile specialist Craven and Donnell Jackfield, who um, are a fact factory in Shropshire that I got to know through a project here in Edinburgh where I created a tiled corridor for a hospital. So a big installation of tiles in a hospital. So um, fell in love with um, Craven and Donnell Jackfield and, and the their manufacturing capabilities so the quest scholarship is going to allow me to um, go and learn with them study with them work on the factory floor and really um, develop my understanding of their making processes um, towards hopefully developing bigger better larger greater tile installations oh wow 
So yeah, that's, that's quite exciting. And I was due to start that in um, January, uh, but at the moment that's not going to be possible. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll see when I can actually get back, get get down to Shropshire and, and get onto the factory floor. But that's yeah, super excited about that. And actually, it sounds you know from our conversations and from sort of the research I've done as you work that actually travel does play quite a big part in your inspiration and your practice and your research so how have you found the last year of not being able to uh to do that or to expand I mean this book has obviously helped and I'm sure you've got lots of books of reference but um you know has it been a strange year in that sense for you yeah I mean I guess for all of us it's been a chance to pause and reflect and 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 look back so you know and there is a whole um resource there that that I can work from um, but plans have been thwarted. It was the plan last uh, sort of spring to drive down to Spain in um, a camper van that we've just bought oh, wow. and visit the Alhambra because I'm, um, uh, I've got plans in place to make some work in response to the Alhambra because of Owen Jones's, um, you know, plans and elevations of the Alhambra, those, those folios. So that's, uh, that's on ice at the moment, but um yeah, I think uh, we all just uh, have to be grateful for what we do have. And I'm, yeah. you know, in, in a very fortunate position. I've got a studio here. I'm kind of very well resourced. I've set up this little studio space at home as well, mm. where I'm working on drawings a lot more. So I think it's I think I think creative people always respond and adapt to the circumstances they find themselves in. And there's always, you know, new shoots and new new leaves new directions to be found in any circumstance so yeah well we've definitely found that you know in the conversations that I've had you know during this podcast but also you know with conversations with artists that we've shown in the gallery and actually you're a resilient bunch really aren't you you definitely <laughs> well, we're kind of used to it we're, yeah. we're used to adversity <laughs> I think bad. and being a bit broke and yeah all of it so but I yeah. suppose also you know your the development of a creative process is to fail and to find a way to kind of adapt and and move yeah. on so and I think so, new environments new stimulus is always yeah, yeah a good thing so yeah not being able to travel is probably a good thing <laughs> yes and then when we do <clears throat> when we do get to travel we'll be that much more appreciative of it so absolutely absolutely anyway it's been really lovely to talk to you today Francis um Likewise. we look forward to having the um, India drawings in the spring exhibition um and yeah I wish you all the best for whatever remains of this lockdown and and into the future so thanks Hannah it's been great to chat I'm, I'm also hugely grateful that you're yeah, letting me show some of the drawings because it, it's not often that I've been doing that. So it's nice yes, of you to yeah. take that work seriously and, and yeah, give me a bit of focus to start to grow them a little bit. Certainly. And I think that's what's nice about the drawings, like before the final piece as well, is that actually it shows a development and it shows the, the stages. And, you know, if you go to a museum and there's a painting on the wall and they'll show the artist sketchbook more often than not and think about that in relation to that so I think mm -hmm. it's I think they're absolutely beautiful and it's and I'm so thrilled that that um you know those those first ones sold um and yes hopefully we'll um be able to say the same for the next thank you for listening to this episode of the Fendit and Gallery podcast if you would like to find out more about our upcoming exhibitions, please visit our website, fenditingallery.com. If you enjoyed this interview, I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to like and subscribe. 
You'll also find other episodes featuring some of the other artists and makers that we've had the pleasure of showing at the gallery. Thank you.